Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today I want to talk about endings. So my list ends in 1914. That means that most of the books that I read and the questions that I'll be asked in the exam won't go past events that, you know, start in 1914, 15, 16. Uh, We might deal with the war a little bit, but mainly my area of expertise comes to a close when the First World War begins. For historians, beginnings and endings of processes are really, really important. Uh, For us, we call it periodization. Um, And we spend a lot of time talking about what sort of periodizations to choose, when to begin stories and when to end them. It's stuff that we argue about really vociferously. When does the early modern period begin and when does it end? What time, what moments do we choose to mark out the beginnings and endings of these processes? Before I was uh, in academia, I thought that these arguments about periodization were kind of pointless. I thought that they were what academics did because they didn't have real jobs and they should be focusing more on like actually history, like, you know, telling stories about things. But now that I am in academia, I realize that periodization is incredibly important. Just think about the classes that you took in undergrad or grad school uh, that taught you history. They had a beginning and an end. And that beginning and an end marks out the boundaries of the story. It tells you what sort of things you can include. And they themselves have a really, really important role in framing what the story that you can tell is. And that means that me ending my story in 1914 tells a lot about what I think my story is. It suggests that whatever it is that I care about ends in 1914, or at least it changes in 1914. And in today's podcast, I want to justify uh, why I choose this period of like 1914 to 1918 as one of my endpoints. But before I do that, I don't want to talk about it academically. Um, I want to talk about it, about how I feel about it, because I think that this choice of a beginning and an ending of a period isn't just something that has an academic stake. It has a lot about what I actually want to do. Uh, It has a lot of questions of style and choice and interest. It has a lot of personal stuff involved. Why do I want to not dip my toes into the 20th century? And I mean, really, I'm not super interested in the 20th century at all. Uh, Before I went into grad school, I said I don't want to deal with any of the world wars. I I just don't want to do it. Um, The 20th century seems too bloody and, and frankly, too politically close uh, to us today for me to get the kind of distance that I like to get from my history. Um, Honestly, it might be the fact that I am not really comfortable in taking a big political stand. And the stories that we tell about the 20th century are stories that really matter still to us politically today. The stories that we tell about the 20th century have to do about, you know, mass politics, the welfare state, war, nationalism, genocide, imperialism, post-colonialism, television, science, the university, advertising, um, all of these big things that matter a ton 
ton to us today that we cannot extract our own personal biases and our own subject positions from. And I'm nervous about making comments on those things publicly. I mean, I have, I have opinions, but I feel nervous about making claims about these things that are still so close to us. And then, I mean, there's something more personal going on here, too, uh, because I think that in my life, I've looked at history and the history books that I've read as kind of a voyeuristic way of looking at places and people that I f would feel at home at. Um, it's kind of like reading a, a, a guidebook for a really cool city that you know you'll never get a chance to visit. I mean, when I was a kid, my hippie parents would tell me stories about the 60s. Um, these stories about protests and ideas and music and drugs and rebellion and, you know, their lives at that time seemed so meaningful and free. They were able to do these really amazing things that I in my life couldn't. When I was a teenager, I watched X-Files. A big story of my life uh, that would be included in a history book is that I'm probably one of the first generation of kids who grew up with a computer and email. That does not really feel as exciting as, you know, uh, listening to the Grateful Dead or buying an LP of Rubber Soul or dropping acid at Woodstock. And so maybe one of the reasons why I got into history is that I have a longing for the past, that I want to go back to some time when I imagined that things would be different, that I would fit in more, that I would have more of a purpose. And of course, I realize that that's a myth that there is no perfect time, that there is no time I could go back to where everything would be, you know, feel right. But I still sometimes read history books in search of these moments, in search of these societies that would feel interesting, in search of these groups of people that I can imagine myself sidling up beside and, you know, having a conversation with. And I think that that's why I was drawn to the 18th and 19th centuries, because, you know, the books about them are filled with these figures who lived the kind of talkative, urbane, comfortable, book-and-friend-filled life that I really, really admire. When I'm reading stories about men like Addison and Steele who hung out at coffee houses, writing newspapers by hand, you know, creating the magazine out of whole cloth, when I read their writing... I really like to imagine myself there. I want to imagine myself climbing up the stairs to Garraway's coffee house in, you know, 1670 and hanging out with Robert Hooke while he dissects porpoises and discusses natural philosophy. I want to know whether I'd make friends with these people, whether I would also be a name like them. My favorite novel is Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain. Um, it is a really, I mean, read it. It's fantastic. Uh, it's set in a tuberculosis sanatorium um, in uh, the Swiss Alps in the late 19th century. And it talks about this young man, Hans Castorp, who is coming of age. It's one of these coming of age stories. But instead of going out into the world and participating in the great questions of his country, or instead of having a love affair, or instead of, you know, making art, you know, instead of doing those things that good bourgeois heroes do, instead, Hans Castorp goes off into the mountains of Switzerland to 
recover from a mysterious and invisible illness. Um, he goes there originally only for a couple weeks to visit his cousin, and then his period of time there is extended again and again and again. In fact, it's always kind of a mysterious question in the novel whether Hans Castorp is ever really ill at all, whether his insides are rotting, or whether it's actually just a trick. And it's a great book because it's all a metaphor, and all the characters that you meet are representatives of great intellectual types, and Hans Castorp's hidden and potentially non-existent illness is a metaphor for the hidden and potentially non-existent illness at the heart of European culture. And so the book is at once this celebration of this urbane and literate bourgeois culture, and it's also this discussion of how bourgeois culture is going to eat itself up from the inside. And I mean, the characters, when you read this book, if you have any interest in European history, read this book. When you read the book, the characters stick in your head as both characters and as representatives of these great philosophical types that you meet when you're reading history about the 18th and 19th centuries. There's Settembrini, uh, the humanist Italian um, who, you know, educates the hero Hans Castorp about reason and the Enlightenment and self-improvement and modernity and all of those great, great things that we actually care about when we care about European culture. And he's struggling away writing uh, encyclopedia articles, uh, participating in international clubs, sending letters to thinkers. And then there is Setembrini's counterpart, Naphtha, the gross Marxist Hegelian who propounds violence and revolution as the solution to the problems that Setembrini is talking about. Instead of reason, he uh, advocates, you know, rhetoric and destruction and lies and, oh, it's great. And the whole book is filled with these characters that manage to be compelling and also intellectual satisfying. And you, like Hans Castorp, will look between all of these wonderful, wonderful characters and you will not be able to decide. You will be caught between their wonderful rhetoric, their great ideas, and you will be torn. Who is right? Who is wrong? What does this all mean? What does Europe mean? What is going to happen? And what is going to happen is World War One? When it all ends, Hans Castorp does not experience some catharsis in which he suddenly realizes what it all means. He does not suddenly, you know, make a book that says everything that he wants to say. He doesn't come to any great personal realizations. World War One happens, and he goes off to war, where his individuality is destroyed. And he becomes a number, a soldier, a force that is marshaled by bureaucrats who don't know him. And he probably dies. Here's one of the last bits of the novel. They have been brought forward, these comrades, for a final thrust in a fight that has already lasted all day long, whose objective is the retaking of the hill position and the burning villages beyond, lost two days since to the enemy. It is a volunteer regiment, fresh young blood, and mostly students, not long in the field. They were roused in the night, brought up in trains to morning, then marched in the rain and on wretched roads, on no roads at all, for the roads were blocked, and they went over moor and plowed land with full kit for seven hours, their coats sodden. It was no pleasure excursion. 
If one did not care to lose one's boots, one stooped at every second step, clutched with one's fingers into the straps, and pulled them out of the quaking mire. It took an hour of such work to cover one meadow. But at last they have reached the appointed spot, exhausted on edge, yet the reserve strength of their useful bodies has kept them tense. They crave neither the sleep nor the food they have been denied. Their wet, mud-splattered faces, framed between strap and gray-covered helmet, are flushed with exertion, perhaps too with the sight of the losses they suffered on their march through the boggy wood. For the enemy, aware of their advance, have concentrated a barrage of shrapnel and large-caliber grenades upon the way they must come. It crashed upon them in the wood, and howling, flaming, splashing lashed the wide, plowed land. They must get through, these three thousand ardent youths. They must reinforce with their bayonets the attack on the burning villages, and the trenches in front of and behind the line of hills. They must help to advance their line to a point indicated in the dispatch their leader has in his pocket. They are three thousand, that they may be two thousand, when the hills, the villages are reached. That is the meaning of their number. They are a body of troops calculating as sufficient, even after great losses, to attack and carry a position, and greet their triumph with a thousand-voiced huzzah, not counting the stragglers that fall out by the way. Many has thus fallen out of the forced march, for which he proved too young and too weak. He grew paler, staggered, set his teeth, drove himself on, and even after all of it he fell out. He dragged himself to the rear of the marching column, overtaken and passed by company after company, at length he remained on the ground, lying where it was not good to lie. Then came the shattering wood. But there are so many of them, swarming on. They can survive a bloodletting and still come on in hosts. They have already overflowed the level, rain-lashed land, the high road, the field road, the boggy plowed land. We shadows stand amid and among them. At the edge of the wood they fix their bayonets with practiced grips. The horns enforce them. The drums roll, and forward they stumble as best they can with shrill cries, nightmarishly, for clods of earth cling to their heavy boots and fetter them. They fling themselves down before the projectiles that come howling on, then they leap up again and hurry forward. They exult in their young, breaking voices as they run, to discover themselves still unhit, or they are hit, and they fall, Fighting the air with their arms, shot through the forehead, the heart, the belly, they lie their faces in the mire, and they are motionless. They lie, their backs elevated by the knapsack, the crowns of their heads pressed into the mud, and clutch and claw in the air. But the wood emits new swarms, who fling themselves down, who spring up, who, shrieking or silent, blunder forward over the fallen. Ah, this young blood, with knapsacks and bayonets, its mud-befouled boots and clothing. We look at it, our humanistic, aesthetic eyes, picture it among scenes far other than these. We see the youths watering horses on a sunny farm on the sea, roving with the beloved one along the strand, the lover's lips to the ear of the yielding bride, in happiest rivalry, bending the bow, alas, no. Here they lie, their noses in fiery filth. They are glad to be here albeit with boundless anguish, with unspeakable sickness for home, and this, of itself, is a noble and shaming thing, but no good reason for bringing them to such a pass. And the book ends with us seeing Hans Castorp amongst this faceless group of young men, 
and he falls and stumbles, and we don't know if he just falls and stumbles or whether he's hit. This great book, one of the greatest books about the development of a person, about the development of an individual, about how ideas move society, ends with the people who are being created turned into faceless numbers and being flung off to die. And it feels like the end of something, the First World War, the destruction of something big. It feels like the end of an era. And, and I mean, that's not a very historical way to look at it. But that's how it feels to me. But let's try to think about this historically. Um, if the world came to an end in August 1914, I have to tell you what that world was and why we can say it ended. An easy way to talk about that from the perspective of this podcast is uh, from a great comedic book called 1066 and All That. Uh, it's this parody of kind of conventional wisdom about British history. And it ends with this remarkable line. Um, in August 1914, America became top nation and history came to a... Uh... And it ends just that with a blank. And that is one idea of why I might end things in 1914. Um, after 1914, Britain is no longer the eminent nation politically, economically, or industrially. America overtakes it. And that can be one of the reasons why we might end this story in 1914. But I think that 1914 marks a different end of a story. I think that it ends, for one particular moment, the global modern world that we live in the second part of. So in the 19th century, the world had been knit together uh, into a much closer one by transportation and communication. Um, in 1914, it was possible to get from one end of Eurasia to the other, from Paris to Vladivostok in Siberia in a train car in about 16 days. Who knows how long it would take in the 18th century? I, I don't think that anybody made that journey. It would take years of your life. Why would you do that? But in the 19th century, in the 20th century, it was possible to do, and people did it for fun. Telegraph cables crisscrossed the world and stretched underneath the ocean, and these telegraph cables brought news of war and changes in the prices of Indian cotton and uh, indigo and personal messages instantly to dinner tables all around the world. Bourgeois men and women after dinner would open up their newspapers every day to get the news, and they would be getting the same news. Refrigerated steamships would sail all across the Atlantic and Pacific, bringing beef and leather and food uh, to people at dinner tables all around the world. And this new global interconnected world was also defined by new ways of making things. There was, of course, the rise of factories run by coal that made things like cotton and iron. And there were new kinds of machines, like the internal combustion engine, that would never have been made if you did not have the big global market that the railway and the steamship allowed. Because the internal combustion engine, the car, required a bunch of different inputs that did not exist in one place in the world at all. 
To make the internal combustion engine, you needed not only steel from uh, British steel mills, but you also needed petroleum from Iran or Iraq, and you also needed rubber from the forests of Brazil or from Malaysia. And there was also an international division of labor above and beyond the international division of, you know, things. Some areas produced raw materials. Some areas were responsible for getting the rubber and the cotton and the coffee and the tea and the petroleum. And they did little manufacturing. Other areas built stuff. They were the places that put everything together. And still other areas, like the square mile of the city of London, were the masters of the universe, where the decisions were made, where the beans were counted, where the capital was invested. You can see this division of labor most clearly even in the very places of transport that made this thing work. Let's look at a steamship crossing the Atlantic. It will be staffed by Indian indentured servants who work for a period of two years doing the most menial jobs on the ship. You have a educated uh, engineer who's most definitely white, most definitely a man who makes the big decisions, who's been trained to do this, who actually commands the ship. And then, back in London, you might have a company, a bureaucracy that manages these ships, that is owned by a giant pool of money, that is distributed amongst a dozen to a hundred to a thousand different people who benefit off of the work of the company and the engineer and the Indian indentured servant. And this all builds up to mean that in the last 40 or so years before the First World War, people were on the move like they were never before. There was tons of immigration to the US, to Canada, Australia, South Africa, and there was tons of people moving for work to areas all around the empires that were springing up. People were going to Egypt and to India and to Argentina and to Brazil. If you're a white American, there's a really, really decent chance that at least one of your ancestors came to America during this time period. I know for me, both sides of my family came to America in this time period. Two prongs of two different diasporas, Scottish and Jewish. We can imagine this world on the move, like our world is today. I know me, I've worked all around the world. I went to a trip to Vietnam last week just for fun. We think of it as normal that people can take airplanes to places and have vastly different lives in vastly different cities. We take it for granted that some of our most rich emotional contacts come on the phone and through postcards and through uh, newspapers and uh, magazines and letters and Skype phone calls. I mean, this is the period of time, probably the first in the entire history of the world, where people made these kinds of trips just for fun. And oddly enough, this world before 1914 is a world that is at peace. There had been no European war since uh, 1815, where everybody was fighting each other. The last time the two European powers had a direct war was in 1871. There were colonial wars, of course, and these could be bloody and repressive and awful, but nothing from 1815 to 1914 would prepare anybody for the carnage of the 20th century.
And so let's think about what changed. At 1914, in August 1914, when the first guns started to fire, the world stopped being as global. We can see this in just the closure of the stock markets. We can see this in the new search for empires to become self-sufficient. We can see this in the fact that people stopped moving around. But more than that, I think there was less certainty. There was less of a sense of the ability of modernity to be something good. There was a while in the 19th century where you could think that all of these processes that I've been tracing since 1688 would just lead to prosperity, utopia, reason. That, you know, if we just worked hard enough and waited, we would find the new modern world and we would find it wonderful. But 1914 ended that. 1914 ended the hope of optimism that, that the factories and the struggles and, and, and the new scientific developments, that all of them would lead to something that in the end would be good, was shattered by the four years of mindless killing. And I think it's that moment that I can't understand. It's that moment that I refuse to accept. It's that moment that makes me want to end my story with the first guns of August. Because I want to study this modern story because I want there to be a chance for us to have that utopia. I want reason and science and learning and effort and all these great middle class values to matter. And 1914 says that they don't. 1914 says that all of this work that we do as individuals in the end can be erased in a day. All of these fantastic personalities, all of this artistic development, all of those young children who are studying the piano, you know, from age six to age 16, whose parents love them, who are, you know, given portraits, who, who, who are the pride of their families, just get draped in khaki and shipped off to die, anonymous, invisible, for no reason. And that's why I ended 1914. Thanks for listening to this episode of uh, Making of a Historian. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the music and uh, Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Check out our page on historian.live. Share us on Facebook. Send me some kind of note. Uh, and I hope you did enjoy it. I will see you guys tomorrow. Tomorrow.